my back has been giving me trouble this week, which probably explains why my focus landed on the image of the 120-year-old Moses climbing yet another mountain. <laughs> I can't help but wonder, what did he expect to see up there or from there? Or did he hope that the cloud covering the mountain would once again blind him to everything but God? What did he expect to happen on Mount Nebo? Or did he no longer expect anything from the God who had once promised everything? The 40-year sojourn in the wilderness had been a story time after time of despair and seeming calamitous end, followed by unexpected grace. During a time of starvation, God had rained down quail and sifted manna over the desert like morning dew. Water had sprung from parched rocks. At the edge of the Red Sea, Egyptian chariots close on their heels, the waters suddenly parted, opening the way to freedom and life. Disappointments may have taught Moses the folly of expectation. God's constant and surprising provision, however, must have kept him in hope. His had been the exemplary pilgrimage of faith, of following God's call, all the while leading and sometimes even dragging the people of God. And you know, it wasn't until, it wasn't until I heard the reading read this morning that I'd realized Moses was so faithful that he didn't even die until God commanded it. Did you catch that? <laughs> it was there on that final mountain that Moses would find the ultimate provision of God stretched out before him, the land promised to his people's ancestors, the land given to their descendants. Moses would stand on the precipice of his life and survey a future he would not enter, a land flowing with milk and honey. And it is here, in this poignant moment, that the Torah ends. Or to be exact, it ends there now. The Torah, these first five books of the Bible, are the sacred source of identity for the people of God. It's through the law and narratives of the Torah that they struggle to understand who God is and who they are as a people of God. And yet, scholars of canonical criticism would tell us, the Torah had not always ended with the death of, G of Moses. It had originally continued with stories of conquest in the Promised Land. What we know as Pentateuch had once been the Hexateuch. The people who had survived Moses had come to understand themselves as people of the land, as inheritors of the fulfillment of that promise made to the ancestors. And so it was natural to have their story culminate to have its fulfillment in the book of Joshua's account 
of their often bloody seizure of the promised land. Growing up under this narrative of conquest and power, the generations that followed became nation builders, and that nation became synonymous with God. The temple in the capital city of Jerusalem had indeed become the very house of God. But that triumphal story has its dangers. And before too long, prophets began to warn of complacency and arrogance. Yet, as long as life in the promised land prospered for the rich and the powerful, those warnings carried little weight. And so it was a grave existential crisis when the Israelites found themselves overrun by the Babylonians and exiled. They were no longer people of the land. They were no longer a great nation. The temple lay in ruin. They had become refugees. As the psalmist lamented, by the rivers of Babylon we sat down there and we wept when we remembered. It was during this exile having lost possession of God's promised land, that the book of Joshua was removed from the recitation of the Torah. No longer did the six-book story, the one ending in triumph, describe their identity. No longer could it be the one to shape their children. Joshua would remain a part of the sacred story and, and would remain even the sixth book of the Bible but it would now be read as failed history, as prophecy, as a warning against complacency and arrogance. And yet, even though the land was gone and the nation collapsed, they discovered to their surprise that God was still with them. They experienced God in the kindness of captors who fed and clothed them, took them into their homes, gave them work, and allowed them to accrue wealth. They experienced God in the mercy of captors who allowed them to worship in ways that were familiar and comforting, even though those ways must have been strange and perhaps even threatening to the nation they now inhabited. And the word of God spoken by the prophets was no longer a message of doom, but of encouragement. Dry bones would sing and dance again. And so they set the story of their identity back up on top of Mount Nebo, overlooking the banks of the River Jordan and the fertile valleys filled with promise. Through the lens of exile, they could see that they were once again restored to the people of faith and hope that God had intended them to be, utterly dependent upon the generous love of God and the compassion of strangers. The teaching and laws enshrined in Torah would shape their lives once again. 
Jesus answers his inquisitors that those laws which had grown from the first 10, we all know, to more than 600, really boil down to two, one great one and one like it. His listeners would have recognized the great commandment as the one they had received from Moses as Jesus had, the one they already prayed every morning and every night from their homes and shops and pastures. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second was also familiar, coming to them from the same holiness code in the Torah. Love your neighbor as yourself. What was new was that Jesus was telling them that everything else about their life in faith should be seen through this lens. The law was not the law for the sake of the law, but for the sake of love, for the sake of justice and mercy. Social anthropologists are quick to point out that Jesus does not mean that we are to have warm and fuzzy feelings toward God and one another, although that sometimes happens. The love he speaks of is not a psychological state or, or an emotional sensation. A better interpretation of love in Jesus' lexicon, they tell us, is connection or attachment. Jesus is telling us that the most important thing we can do is connect with God with all that we are heart, mind, and soul, knowing that when we do that, we will find that the fullness of our being is embedded in the very beingness of God. And if we would only fasten to God with all that we are, we would find likewise that we are also fastened to one another and all creation. Love God truly and fully and we cannot help but love others. The actions of our lives would be just and merciful. Forgiveness and compassion would flow from our hearts. Wisdom and thoughtfulness flow from our minds. We would find peace in our souls. Until that day, however, we too live in a sort of exile not quite at home in God, not quite at home in ourselves, not quite at home with one another. But there are moments, aren't there, when we are near enough to see home from here. And so we pray, as in our collect this morning, that God might increase in us the gifts of faith, hope, and love and that we might obtain what God promises, we pray that we may love what God commands. May we one day occupy our lives and our lands so fully that the promises of God are known by all. Amen.